Hello and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, we're taping this on a Monday night. We just watched the Philadelphia 76ers kind of right the ship against the Brooklyn Nets. But I'm curious, should we do a concept podcast where we try to time machine ourselves back to Saturday night after the Nets <laughs> thoroughly <laughs> embarrassed the Sixers? And really, the Sixers embarrassed themselves and got booed off the court by their home fans. And they were falling apart in every single direction because something tells me that you probably had the most lethal venom that you were ready to direct at every single person within the Sixers organization, the fan base, the players, the management, right on down the list. And now I'm curious, are you going to scale it back at all? Um, Are are you convinced now that they've evened the series that the disaster is behind them? Uh, Or are you still Mm. ready to just kind of flamethrow at everybody in the city of brotherly love? You know what? It's tough. Look, first of all, You're correct that had we recorded this podcast on Saturday afternoon in the immediate aftermath of D'Angelo Russell's stellar (laughs) second half to steal game one from Philadelphia and in the immediate aftermath of Ben Simmons disappearing at, again, I should add, uh, Joel Embiid kind of, I, I mean... The Embiid stuff is actually a a major bummer. Uh, We'll obviously get to all of this. Uh, The Tobias Harris disappearance. Look, it would have been a very feisty pod, in part because you and I would have been talking trash for the first five minutes, and then we would have spent about 40 minutes burying the Sixers. And um, I have to be honest, there's the smart thing to do here is to be diplomatic and to start hedging and say, well... You know, nobody the, wants the that. The Sixers are alive. Look, Andrew, you know? on behalf of the Open Floor Globe uh, members all over the world, they want to hear the Andrew Sharp reports version. They want the pure dope from you. Just let loose. I mean, forget about the diplomacy. You know, leave all of that to the State Department. Okay, we want to hear the the real <laughs> the, the real feelings that you've got on your mind because you're you're waffly. We can hear you dancing around. Just get to it. Unload a little bit. Well, okay, so it's late at night, so I'm a little tamer than I would have been had we recorded this podcast three hours ago, but I will say this. The Sixers could have won by 50 in Game 2, and it would not (laughs) have been enough for me to shake the shock that I had watching that team in Game 1. And it's funny because, obviously, like we all knew intellectually what this team was doing this year and the choices that were made and the all-in bets from Elton Brand, and like we all understood that, but I didn't really, it didn't really click with me until I watched them play that Nets team, which, look, the Nets are great, and I've had a lot of fun watching them in these first two games, and I enjoyed some of their games throughout the season. Uh, they have a great announcing crew. They played a lot of close games, no matter what. They were always fun, but they're not a good team, and so watching them against the Sixers, the Nets at least know what they want to do on every possession, and they have a real identity, and the Sixers just don't, you know? Particularly if Embiid is hurt, there's no plan on offense, and you see Simmons disappearing all over again, the same way he did against the Celtics, the same way he did against um, against Giannis twice in the final month of the season when Giannis basically treated him like an eighth grade player trying to play with the varsity and stuffed him in a locker. Like that was embarrassing. And he, and Simmons didn't show any fight in those matchups. And I, so yeah. How about his post game performance too, right? 
well, yeah, and the post-game performance where he comes out and starts lecturing the fans who have been booing him. And, like, look, we can talk a little bit more about why I'm out on Simmons in general, but in that particular moment in Game 1, I was just like, I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe that th- that you're an alleged superstar and you're going to be this passive in a big moment where your team is getting punked on their home floor in game one of the playoffs. And all you guys have been talking about all season long is how much talent you have and how when you get to the playoffs, that's all that's going to matter. Like, I was just amazed. Seriously, the lack of energy up and down the roster. Um, And credit to Simmons for coming back in game two and playing his ass off, uh, particularly in the first quarter. He was going right at the rim on every possession. Well, no question, but let's stick to game one first because it reminded me. (laughs) uh, You're enjoying this for me. No, it reminded me of that whole blind date thing. It's like, all right, we'll just go ahead and put all your baggage on the table, right? Just like let them know Uh all of the potential pitfalls that might be involved in dating you early so they don't find out later once it's too late, right? The Sixers put all of their issues on the table in game one. Embiid's health. Uh, Simmons's unpredictability, the no-show possibilities from Tobias Harris um, and J.J. Redick. I mean, the list goes on and on. The lack of depth, the, the shooting question marks that you know sometimes arise, the fact that their home crowd is just ready to turn on them at a moment's notice, the fact that Elton Brand was ready to go all in like you were describing with this group, uh, and all of a sudden they're not even living up to sort of a basic level of competence against a team in the Brooklyn Nets who just are not good. They're not talented, no matter what people want to say on the internet. They're well coached, they're spunky, but they're not actually good. So all of that stuff was uh, on the table in game one. And I'll be honest, I mean, the blind date scenario I'm describing, I got up from the table and walked out of the restaurant. I didn't look back to pay the bill. (laughs) I was just out. And I understand why a lot of venom is going to go towards Simmons, but I really do think that a lot of the issues that we saw in game one kind of trace back to the Embiid factor because he's the franchise player. He's the biggest personality. He's their best player. And yeah. he's moving worse than Nikola Jokic out there. I mean, even in game two, when they're playing better, he is not moving right. And I think that there becomes this like paralysis of uncertainty when a star player isn't capable of doing what he's used to doing, where everyone uh-huh. starts to look around and stare at them and, and start to second guess their own movements and you know just gets to be a little bit more passive. And that's the one thing the Nets are not going to do, right? Like they're just going to come out, they're going to gun their three pointers. D'Angelo is going to come off those screens, pull up, shoot his mid range jumpers, probably miss them more often than he makes them. <laughs> and they're just going to stick to that script. But you could tell Philly was just doing so much thinking in game one. And I think they're going to be okay here against Brooklyn. But all of those flaws we saw early, those are going to catch up to them at some point. Yeah, there's no question about it. And you listed a bunch of them. I mean, off the top of my head, like the J.J. Redick situation is actually quietly really, really interesting. Because right now, at this point in his career, he is more of an 82-game player than he is a 16-game player. And people would talk about him being targeted in the playoffs throughout this regular season And I would always kind of poo-poo that idea as being like a real crisis that the Sixers had to worry about. But now we're here and it's like the Nets are attacking him on every single possession. And this is the Nets. Like once you get to the Celtics and the Bucks, you're going to have an even easier time going after Redick. And um, there's no question. Look, I've saw the same thing happen in these Clipper playoff games the last few years. I mean, he puts on 
that invisibility cloak. It just happens. You know, it's almost like he needs a real mentor, maybe like a Landry Shamit type to step in there in the in the <laughs> in the 16 game series and you know, 16 game uh, section of the season and, and show him how to do it. But he's an issue, well, man. And that's again, it goes back the to other. Doesn't that go back to Brand's the, decision making though? It's like if this is yes. one of your guys who you're thinking, look, we really got to like maximize this group but you can barely keep him on the court. And at times you've got to pull him off for defensive purposes. Where are you going? Why are you making all these trades? Why are you squandering all your draft picks? Yeah. Well, and that's part of what I find really interesting about Redick is like, he is really important to everything they try to do during the regular season. And when Redick plays well, they are twice as hard to beat in any given matchup. And um, he's also old and he's also going to be very expensive this summer and probably will be overpaid by whoever pays him. And so if you're the Sixers, that leaves you in a tricky spot as you're planning the future. Here's a guy who has been crucial, but also isn't very useful in the playoffs or is about half as useful as he is in the regular season. He's getting older. He's not a viable option for the long term as you're trying to like plan the future here. And when you look at the other decisions they've made, all of that same logic extends to Jimmy Butler. Like, he's not a great option if you're trying to plan the next four years with Embiid and Simmons. Tobias Harris, I mean, Tobias Harris is going to get paid $30 million a year this summer, or at least 25 And you look at what he's doing in some of these games, and like, he's a nice player. This is not an ideal situation for him. But... He's a guy who is really only valuable if he's getting a steady stream of touches and is the primary option. And even then, he's not going to be an elite scorer. And so, like, he's not going to carry an offense or carry an elite offense. Andrew, I had a vision. I had a vision of the future, okay? It's July uh 6th. The Sixers have re-signed Tobias Harris uh, to a near-max contract. And the first wave of take reactions is in, Andrew. And the first wave has concluded... They made the right decision to pay Tobias and not Jimmy. Fast forward to July 8th, two days later, and the well actually takes are in. Wait a minute. Tobias Harris is not worth this money. What were the Sixers doing? (laughs) It's tough. It's tough. And I, I need to be very clear on one point before we proceed with another 10 or 15 minutes of Sixers talk. I take no joy in this. I think Yeah, you, right. Yeah, right. No, no, no. You. Come on. I See, that's, don't. that's I, the real thing. When they're struggling here in the playoffs, I mean, did you start to feel bad for the Sixers fans? Because they've been so classy and dignified the whole way through. You know, I mean, they've obviously been through a lot, but you know, we've never seen anything <laughs> except for complete high horse behavior from them. And you didn't that's true. you didn't once want to kind of look over there and, and get a few jabs in? No, because I've buried the hatchet with Sixers fans. The only thing that I take some small delight in is the disappearing act that is now an annual tradition for Ben Simmons <laughs> because of the lectures that I had to endure from you and uh, and actually legions of Sixers fans who would hit me up all of last season telling me how, what an idiot I was. Well, those aren't going anywhere. I... I, I... I'm still Team Simmons. There's no question. Look, the game one performance scared me. I would love to hear your your take on game two in a second, but I just think it's very clear, like the fundamental issue with this Sixers group, and we've gone through all these other problems that are kind of you know secondary or or uh, tertiary problems. But 
I just don't think that Embiid and Simmons are really that great of a fit together. And neither player is perfect. Neither player is, uh, you know, deserving of like no blame, right? Like Embiid's injury history, mm-hmm. Simmons's approach to just his development and, and uh, you know, the lapses that you've, you know, really delighted in pointing out. But you, you can't <laughs> convince me that there's not better situations for Simmons to go be the lead guy somewhere else. And you can't convince me that Embiid wouldn't be just fine if you plugged in a replacement level point guard into that spot, especially one who was, uh, you know, better at defending the point of attack and better at shooting three pointers. I think the Sixers would be fine there. And I think Simmons's career, not only from a success standpoint, a statistical standpoint, and a fame standpoint, all of those things would absolutely like, you know, blow up if he was to go to his own direction. I guess if I was team Simmons, um, I would mm-hmm. be egging him on to continue, you know, these pot shots at the Sixers fans, which are completely unnecessary, but that could be a good method to get him into that Anthony Davis category where everybody sours on him and now he becomes uh, available in trade scenarios. Yeah. You know, I'm not, Here's where I am with the Sixers. I'm glad you mentioned Embiid and Simmons because that is ultimately where the problem lies. And I think a lot of people want to focus on their fit and say that's the problem. And that's true to some degree because, look, when you watch them in some of these playoff games, like the paint is packed with six or seven people and the Nets are just sitting in there with three or four defenders, and every good team is going to be able to do that against the Sixers. And that's a real issue that's a function of... Embiid's sort of the reality of Embiid's perimeter shooting and and teams kind of catching on to the idea that, look, like if he's going to take five or six threes a game, just let him shoot. And then Simmons is just sitting there in the dunker spot for 40 minutes a game. And it's like, all right, well, uh, that's not ideal either. So I think the fit stuff is real. But ultimately, wasn't that like the big adjustment, though, from game one to game two, where it was like Brett Brown clearly said, like, hey, Ben, even if. Uh, Embiid is just laboring up the court like don't wait for him just go you know yeah. like push the tempo get up there put pressure on the defense try to go downhill good things will happen because when they were getting in the half court situations it was completely a rugby scrum in the paint just like you're describing and there was still that issue actually in game two despite some of the adjustments uh, and that would make me pretty nervous uh, about how these things are going to play out when they start to play against better competition um, late in the playoffs my last thought though from game two was you know, impressive restraint from Philly's front office and ownership not to fire Brett Brown after game one. Like, wasn't there a possibility? (laughs) Like, wasn't there a non-zero chance after you watched how game one played out where they were just like, you know what, let's pick one of our random assistants on the staff and let him have control the rest of the series? No, no, no. Brett was always going to be fine. Although, look, if they lose this series, he's... 100% on the way out in Philadelphia, and he will be good somewhere else. I have to say, though, I agree with you. I was heartened to see the progress from both Simmons and Embiid, and watching game one, I did start to worry, like, has this team just stopped listening to Brett Brown? Like, is he not coaching, or are they not listening? Because they were just so disorganized, and Embiid's out there just jacking up shots. It seemed like the communication around Embiid's injury was in kind of a weird place in the lead up to game one. Brett Brown didn't seem to know exactly what was going on. That's that paralysis that I was talking about, right? Hey, on on Simmons though in game two, uh, I understand Mm -hmm. I'm granting all of your criticisms from game one. I mean, it was basically an inexcusable performance on offense and defense. I mean, I think the fundamental fit questions are always going to paint Simmons, making him look worse than he actually is, you know, with this group. But he, yeah. he needs to be 
much more accountable to himself and his teammates than he was in game one. How much of what you saw from him in game two, though, actually convinced you that like this is the player he can be? Or are you just ready for him to get right back into that game one mentality as these playoffs go forward? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, first of all, I thought Brett Brown um, did a nice job encouraging Simmons because it was clearly a concerted effort on the part of the entire team to get him involved and to keep him aggressive throughout the first quarter. And I thought it paid off for the Sixers because A, Simmons' offense got going and he was getting to the rim and getting points in the paint. And then also that opened up his passing more than it had been in game one. So it, it was a smart strategy from the Sixers and it was really impressive from Simmons. That said, it shouldn't be this like, miraculous breakthrough to come out in the first quarter of a playoff game and go hard and be aggressive. But for Simmons, it felt like this big thing. It's like, oh, wow, this is the player he could be. Um, no, Simmons know, really man. thinks he's a top 10 player right now. I mean, like he, he does the kinds of things that are annoying for players who are way more accomplished. Like we get on the Warriors for not locking in like night to night, right? It's like, oh, here they go yeah. again. Like they're almost bored by their own brilliance. Like Ben, you're, you're not brilliant enough to be bored yet. Well, okay, yes. Um, and if you want to know, if you want to know the origins of my Simmons skepticism, obviously the lack of a jumper is a huge part of it. But there were also things that I heard about him in the lead up to the NBA draft and the way he handled that season at LSU. And a lot of people will say, well, he shouldn't have even had to go to college. Like, why, why does that matter? And... All I can say is like stuff like that. You learn about what kind of teammate a guy is and what and how competitive they are and all the conversations that we've had about Zion. Ben Simmons was the polar opposite at LSU. And I think that speaks to the lack of fight with him. And uh, I like so when people want to say if you give Ben Simmons his own team and build around him and surround him with shooters, he can be great. I agree with that to a point. But I also think that there are some intangibles with him that would worry me regardless. And would and I think if you build a team around strictly Simmons, you're going to end up disappointed in the long run, in part because he's basically just JV Giannis, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about that over the next 10 or 15 years. No, I'm with you um, on a lot of this. I mean, it's possible for him to both be a Hall of Famer, which I still think is in play for him, and also a disappointment, which is really where you're getting at, like not living up to his full potential. I mean, there's some real, you know, mellow possibilities there, right? Where like, isn't he very likely to head down this bystander to his own reality uh, thing that I used to always say about Carmelo, where like he doesn't really do the accurate self-assessments and work hard enough to address his weaknesses. So he winds up getting stuck in situations that he, he believes are beneath him when in reality they're not. Like, I mean, there's no excuse for him to not have made any progress on his outside shot at from this point in yeah. his career. None. And you can say the same thing about Melo's defensive intensity through the first few years of his career. And that's why, you know, he's sitting courtside and watching his buddies play basketball now and he's not on an NBA roster because the, the light bulb never clicked. And look, we're getting well, way ahead of ourselves. I and mean, that's like 15 years down the road for Simmons. No, but it's that same personality question mark or flaw that could wind up keeping Simmons from really truly being a transformational type player yeah and and it's a tricky conversation to have because Simmons is still I believe 22 years old he's still real young 
Um, and I don't take joy in nitpicking anybody's character. Uh, and it, and again, I want to say, but you would I buried have, the if, hatchet. If you didn't show up for game two, you would have taken a lot of joy, though. Let's be real. <laughs> well, the only joy I take is related strictly to our stupid feuds that, that kind of pervade over the years with this podcast. Well, uh, um, speaking of that, D'Angelo Russell, man, that's another one where you were so geeked up talking your little trash on Twitter after game one. Man, look. I mean, they were mu- much better, I thought, in game one because of Karis LeVert, not Russell. Plus minus bears Look. that out. Russell's efficiency numbers bear that out. And I thought he was pretty bad in game two. I mean, the shot selection stuff drives me crazy. The no free throws obviously drive me crazy. Uh, the lack of other major contributions other than him just wanting to pull up and shoot these, you know, 15 to 17 footers. And, you know, obviously I, I encourage their offensive system to be built around what he does well, but he's just not really bringing that much to the table. And I definitely think he got overrated. He went from probably underrated to overrated this season to me. uh, And it happened in the blink of an eye. I can't tell whether he's overrated or underrated in part because of the people I surround myself with. I surround myself with a lot more Gollivers than like (laughs) normal basketball fans. And so all the smart basketball people that I talk to are constantly like, yeah, I don't really see it with D'Angelo. I don't trust anything that's happening in Brooklyn this year. And you're stripping things of context here because I remember (laughs) in game one against the Sixers, within the first six minutes of the game, D'Angelo Russell started 0 for 5 or 0 for 6 or something. I had text messages from you. I had text messages from Spike Eskin. I had all kinds of people talking shit to me about the state of D'Angelo Russell. All I want to say is that he turned around and hit some big shots in that second half. No, he had, and he has moments he had, where he had one he's nice quarter. good. He had one nice quarter. I don't know if he's good. I well, mean, the, One nice quarter that ended up deciding the game. What are you going to do? Why do we play any of these games? Well, I mean, he was a minus, so I'm not sure it decided the game. I think Levert is who decided that game. But well, okay. So Kyle Lowry was plus 10 in his game one disaster. What Are we going to sit here and pretend that plus minus is the, is the end-all be-all? Well, Kyle Lowry was sort of like the ankle weight around Kawhi Leonard's ankle right so like he gets he gets the benefit <laughs> of playing with an, a player who is actually really really good it makes him look better I mean I think uh-huh. in Brooklyn's context like they go as Russell goes because he jacks up every shot right so if if he's yeah. not hitting they're not gonna win uh if he's hitting well, they might actually and you have know a chance what's interesting he's he kind of reminds me of Tobias Harris a little bit where it's like you can be good in a specific context where you're the guy and you have somehow lucked into a situation where you're allowed to take 10 pull-up threes per game and everybody's cool with it because there's just no good alternative. And that's kind of where Russell is right now. And he's making it work more than I think you're acknowledging. Oh, he, he's but making I also, it work and he's going to get paid like absolutely crazy. And uh, we're just going to all be sitting back here chuckling and saying, man, look at yeah. all these things that he doesn't do. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I'll always love him and I will always love game one as a special moment in open floor history um, and me being right about the big things. But I do think we should finish things off here with some bigger picture thoughts on the Sixers. It really sounded like you were cherry, pick- cherry picking one game to uh, solve a, a couple of <laughs> years long arguments because it might have gone well, your way. That doesn't really sound you know quite what? right. How's Ingram doing, by the way? Are you still taking Ingram over uh, Ben Simmons? How's that working out for you? 
I have not sold my stock on that one, my friend. And it's funny. All it takes is well, one half-decent Ben Simmons game. What do you have, 18 points and 10 assists tonight? I, yeah. I wouldn't be tooting my horn too loudly well, on the Simmons front if I were you. He had a, uh, another playoff triple-double. Uh, we're still waiting on Ingram's first playoff appearance. I don't know, though. Does, it, <laughs> does NASDAQ have rules where if your stock gets below a certain number, it's, you can't sell it anymore? Like, it's just off the board? I mean, isn't that basically Look, where man. Ingram's at right now? I mean, no disrespect because of the health stuff, obviously. Obviously, but I mean, he's played less than 60 games in back-to-back seasons, hasn't made significant progress on a lot of the areas we talked about, certainly fell short of all your chest-thumping uh, from last year's Top 100 discussion. So I don't know, man. Uh, these you know these big funny, things man? might need some independent arbiters. That's all I'm saying. The, the price of my Ingram over Simmons stock has plummeted so low that I have been able to buy up like every <laughs> every share available, every share on the face of the earth, I now own. And when Ingram is the better player in five years and Simmons is on like some seventh seed somewhere where they finally surrounded him with shooters and everyone is just phenomenally disappointed by the end result, uh, I am going to be the richest man on the face of the earth and we're gonna have we're gonna still be doing this podcast. And we're going to be doing donation drives among listeners who, who send in money via PayPal to you to compensate you for all your tragic Ben Simmons losses. Yeah, I mean, you sound like somebody like Fire Festival mi- mixed with Waiters Island. I mean, <laughs> that's what this sounds like right now. But I also have I have breaking news for you because TNT okay. is now showing a graphic, which I know is just going to make your heart burn, okay? It's titled Multiple Triple Doubles, 76ers Playoff History. And it goes Wilt Chamberlain 8. Charles Barkley two, Ben Simmons two. So what do you think, Andrew? Is he in the is he in the conversation with all time greats like Wilton Chuck? Absolutely. Look, I heard it here on the Open Floor Podcast first. <laughs> ben Simmons is going to finish his career in the NBA Hall of Fame and will be front row at Springfield at the induction ceremony. Um I do want to say one thing though. It, to keep this coherent. Uh, which it has not been. And I'm sure we just lost listeners after the last five minutes of you and I bickering back and forth. We're doing great. Keep it going. Here's what I will say about the Sixers. First of all, it is very important to remember how long these playoff runs actually go. And there is a non-zero chance that the Sixers could beat the Nets beat a Raptors team that I'm still not sure what to make of, you know, like they, I really don't know how to read the Raptors and and what they can do this spring. Um, And be in the conference finals and be able to go toe to toe with a Bucks team that they have played fairly close, despite Giannis going superhuman uh, and punking Ben Simmons and scoring 50 a game. Like those games have still been pretty competitive and that series could go either way uh obviously milwaukee would be favored and obviously the celtics would be favored if that's who they played in the conference finals but like the door is still open for the sixers and it's important to acknowledge that what has struck me and what struck me in that first game was more just how low the ceiling could be and how crazy that is after where we were 12 months ago because 12 months ago Everyone was writing the Sixers into the finals. They were about to go beat that JV Celtics team, and they were seen as the next um, 2011 Thunder, and they had already arrived. The title window was open, and it's just unbelievable how much has changed in 12 months because now you look at it, and it's like 
Jimmy Butler's not a great long-term option. Tobias Harris isn't a great long-term option. No, I mean, JJ Redick isn't look, a great th- long-term option. There's no question Elton really made a mess of this season. It's gonna, it's only going to get worse. I mean, it's not going to be aging like fine wine. It's going to be spoiling, right? But I think that the yeah. central issue for them, it's Embiid and his health and his ability to hold up to huge minutes and huge usage in in uh, extended postseason series. I mean, I love that Draymond Green uh, adage about the 82-game player versus the 16-game player, right? But if I had to nitpick, I would say this. 16-game player, that almost uh, connotes like a shortness about it, right? Like, oh, you just have to be really locked in for 16 games in your set. Like, that's not how the playoffs work. Like, you have to be able to hold mm-hmm. up to all sorts of physical matchups. I mean, look no further than Brooklyn. Like, half their team seemed like they were out after banging with Embiid in one game, right? Um, you have to be able to handle that physical pounding. You have to be able to handle the adjustments, the stylistic changes. You're going to have to run out to three-point shooters. You're going to have to play in overtime. Uh, you're going to have to do all the things that, uh, you know, teams like the Warriors have carefully managed their players, you know, for multiple seasons to kind of put them in positions to do that. And I think it's a total open question whether Embiid is really a 16-game player. When Once you realize to win a title, you're going to have to probably no, play is. 25 games, right? And you're going to have to do it against uh, teams that are going to be trying to exploit him, going right at him, pulling him away from the hoop, uh, testing his body. He's going to have to hold up to huge minutes. Usually you want to play your stars 40 minutes in the finals if you can. Do you really expect Joel Embiid to be able to do that? You know, play 40 plus minutes six times in a row uh, against the Warriors in the finals? There's no way. I mean, he's already banged up, you know, before the playoffs even started. And this has been a problem in the past, too. So, That, to me, is the most scary part of all of this. Like, Elton Brand could have sat on his hands the entire year and done nothing, and I still would be worried on behalf of the Sixers because of that Embiid factor. I agree, and I think that was the point that I wanted to end on, is that I think no matter what happens to the Sixers, I don't see them going to the finals, I don't see them winning an NBA title, and then this summer everything's going to get complicated, and there's going to be a lot of people who want to come in and relitigate the last 24 months of decision making in Philadelphia. And I think there's a lot of room to criticize the way the Sixers have played this. However, the most important point in all of this, and the most important thing in when you're building these dynasties, is still luck. And and the fundamental luck that any great would-be title team is gonna need is lucking into the right superstars. And that's like the original, I don't want to say sin, but like the, the, the fatal flaw in what the Sixers are trying to build is that I think Embiid, his health, and that and it's yeah. a real bummer. Well, one you know? way to look at it is if he was really the right superstar, he wouldn't have been available for them to pick at number three, right? Because he would have been number yeah. one overall because there was already concerns about his health at that point. And um, so I think that and, you know that that kind of puts the whole thing into context. Like they assumed a certain level of risk by drafting him. They assumed a certain level of risk by giving him that second contract. Uh, they knew what mm-hmm. they were getting into, and now they're dealing with the repercussions. And they're not fun to talk about because no one wants to see Embiid laboring up and down the court. It's painful to watch. We want to see him dude, playing a hundred percent. I was on here two weeks ago calling him a top five player and saying that he had a chance to end this postseason run as the best player in the league, which even at the time, that was like hyperbolic yeah, on no, my nobody part. Nobody listened like the, to you, but you did say that. No, and the door was open is my only point. And he has stretches where he looks like the most dominant player in the league. Um, the problem with Embiid, I'd say, would, would be twofold. Number one, he is still 10 to 15 to 20 pounds 
too overweight, and I'm not sure why he hasn't been able to get yeah. in shape over the last two When's years. That I'm coming sure injuries off? are part of that story. When does that come off? I mean, how long are we waiting on that, Andrew? I don't know, man. I mean, I don't really understand why the team hasn't been able to say, look, all right, you're carrying too much weight. This is, And it's a fundamental thing. Like, he's been injury prone, and the more weight he's carrying up and down the court for six or seven months a season, the, the more opportunities. Actually, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how this works. I'm not an orthopedist. But I would imagine that it doesn't help his chances if he's heavier. And, um, and then the other thing I would add is that the team badly mismanaged his health this season. And they deserve a ton of criticism as well. Because for the first 60 games... I remember looking up and expecting to see Embiid sitting a lot more than he ever did. And he was great. And it was one of the reasons people were saying, all right, well, maybe he should be in the MVP race. Maybe like he's carrying this team every night. But the reality is that it's the team's responsibility to take the long view. And as much as everybody in Philadelphia and as much as probably Embiid himself wanted to be out there every night, the team has to step in and say, look, we're playing for May and June. We want you healthy. You're going to sit these two games and we'll figure it out. And if we win 47 games instead of 49 games or 50 games, we'll be okay. And those conversations never happened. And then he wound up missing the final two weeks and he's a game time decision in every, every one of these playoff games. And like that reflects really poorly on the organization, particularly since they spent the entire season talking about playing for a title and talking about going all in to win this year. And that just hasn't happened. Um, yeah. And I think a so lot that of that of has to go on to the GM there. Again, it's Elton Brand because one of the hardest parts of that job is telling your players things that they don't want to hear and telling your owner things that he, he or she doesn't want to hear. Right. And in both cases, the idea of we've got to manage Embiid's minutes and maybe take some losses in November and December and maybe take some yeah. flack in the public. I mean, guys like us are going to be screaming at them if, if they're resting him like Kawhi Leonard, right? But would you rather have Kawhi Leonard where no, he is right now in Toronto, or would you rather have uh, Embiid where he is in Philadelphia? And look, I'm uh, we might show them a little bit more deference because of Embiid's track record, but if he's sitting out 30-plus yeah, games, I think that there would be some pushback. And that's what I'm saying. That's why it's hard for a GM to do that. And when Elton Brand's just coming in here and just being like, you know what? I'm burning assets left and right. We're going for it. This is it. Like that will make the owner happy because owners want to win. They're competitive people. But you usually in that job, you're trying to restrain the owner. You're trying to say, look, man, like let's be patient. Let's like let's be deliberate. Let's avoid making, you know, rash decisions or big mistakes. And I think you yep. can see the same problem with the types of moves that uh, Brand made and also the same, you know, philosophy in terms of how they managed Embiid. I was talking to an executive a couple weeks ago. Uh, about uh -huh. like who sh who should get some of these jobs that are opening up, and his thing was like I don't really care who they are, but I just want somebody with some guts who's going to actually make some moves because uh, I'm sick of all these guys who don't want to actually make trades and they just sit on their hands and they don't do any deals anymore. And we we've lost the deal makers, and I think really what that person meant was I'm looking for people who I can fleece. I'm looking for people who I can just like get on a phone, talk into a stupid deal for their team and take advantage of them, right? And isn't that exactly what yeah. happened to Elton Brand this year? Yeah, it kind of is. And I, and I think part of that though, you mentioned managing up and managing your owner's expectations. Elton Brand was doing that with less leverage than just about any general manager in the league because he was brought in late 
He does. No one is exactly sure how much power he has relative to Brett Brown, relative to other people in that organization. So his job is complicated, and I don't necessarily pin all of these decisions on Elton Brand so much as probably more so it's a Josh Harris, Brett Brown situation. Um, but in either case, like there have been some mistakes made and a lot of these decisions were short-sighted and it's a, it's a tough situation. And Sixers fans, if you're pissed off, just know that there's a decent chance that after the last 35 minutes of Sixers darkness and Ben and I going all in on this, that we have successfully jinxed the Sixers into a finals run this year. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, you are two step at hedging. I've never even seen this. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to be on YouTube with some new dance craze. The way you're trying to cover all your bases. No, no, no. there's no hedging. Okay. The Sixers just won a playoff game by 35 points. And both you and I came on on the podcast and we're like, this team is completely screwed. I can't believe how bad it is. Well, let me, (laughs) let me return to one of your big picture statements. You said not that long ago that the top four threats to the golden state warriors are all from the Eastern Conference. So obviously Philly's in that conversation because I don't think you're elevating Indiana or Orlando into that top four. Um, Uh After you watched the way Golden State played uh, in the opening weekend, after you watched the way that James Harden and the Rockets played opening weekend, after you watched the way uh, Philadelphia played opening weekend, are you really telling me that Philadelphia is still one of the top four threats to Golden State in this year's finals? There's no way. Well, I mean, it's tricky now. I mean, Embiid isn't healthy. Embiid isn't the same guy. In that case, absolutely not, because that he's their, he's the one thing on offense that they can always go to when they lack an identity, when they lack a clear plan. Embiid can still take over games and dominate. And um, and if that option isn't there, then their ceiling gets much much lower and so obviously so why are you hedging you look at them <laughs> i mean I'm, are you think he's gonna get magically healthy here going well, forward no if you're co- coming in here finger wagging at me like oh i told you about the sixers i didn't know Embiid was going to be in this rough of a shape as as we go forward in the playoffs look, you could have just um, answered my uh, rhetorical question by saying no they're not a top four threat to golden state i mean <laughs> that would be the easy and prudent thing to do okay here. okay no it's true okay they are th- let's let's say Top five Warriors threats. Number one would be the Milwaukee Bucks. Ah, no. Number one is the Boston Celtics. Number two is the Milwaukee Bucks. Number three is the Houston... No, the Toronto Raptors. Number four is the Houston Rockets. Get out of here. Number five is someone goes uh, Tanya Harding on Steph Curry's ankles. Look, this podcast requires you to just be kind of, you know, honest. And now you're just playing a bit, okay? Now you're trying to be this Eastern Conference supremacist, this Eastern Conference elitist. (laughs) Jesus. No, it, it really isn't a bit. And I did not appreciate all your little minions who popped in my mentions on Saturday <laughs> night and were like, oh, wow, after on the heels of the fluke loss by the Raptors <laughs> to the Orlando Magic, and we're like, what were you saying about the Eastern Conference? You told me the top of the East was better than the West. And it's like, yeah, man, it's objectively better. That's not even a debate among people who actually know basketball and don't have their heads up their ass. This is why we should not record podcasts <laughs> past midnight. It gets a little too real. All right. But, you're you're um, <laughs> treading into embarrassing yourself territory. So I'm going to reel you back in by transitioning from one team that was, uh, you know, a big disappointment 
uh, in game one to another team that was a big disappointment in game one. I got to say, like as much fun as we've had maybe at the Sixers fans expense here, nothing beats the termite self-destruction, Andrew. I mean, up there in Toronto, I'm actually starting to feel bad for them. I mean, Kyle Lowry goes scoreless. Like, have you seen that viral video of the UCLA gymnast, you know, dancing to, I think it was Michael Jackson, where she got like 50,000 retweets because she was doing these amazing contortion acts. Like, that's what I think of when I hear these Lowry apologists trying to bend over backwards and make up all these insane rationalizations for, you know, how, you know, how he didn't actually play that bad in game one. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. On top of that, though, uh, I saw a great headline that said game two uh, against the Magic is going to be the biggest game in Raptors history. And look, we know there are some really sad franchises out there, but not even the Washington Wizards would ever circle a game two in the first round against the Orlando Magic and try to prop that up as the most important game in franchise history. There's no way, Andrew. And the jokes kind of write themselves. Like we've we've seen it before, the meltdowns before. I'm actually not that worried on behalf of Toronto. I think they're going to be okay against Orlando. It was a pretty fluky game, like you mentioned. But yeah, they went straight into the panic like mode so fast, like faster than we can even like keep up with. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I want to add, as far as Orlando's concerned, it was fluky, but it was also crazy impressive on the Magic side because there were probably five or six times in that second half where the Raptors would go up four or five, six points, and I was like, okay, so this game is over. And then the Magic would keep kind of whittling things down and hanging around and fighting back, and it was just awesome. And DJ Augustine, our guy... Uh, riding high off his first open floor mention all season. Um, <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah, seven months into the NBA season. Uh, he was phenomenal. So they deserve a lot of credit. I am not particularly worried about the Raptors. The Lowry thing is the Achilles heel. And it's funny, when I was thinking about finals picks, I really do think that we've been sleeping on Kawhi a lot this season, and he has a chance to come through and own these playoffs. Um, he and a couple other guys, there are only a few people in that category who can really like put their stamp on the entire postseason, but Kawhi is one of them. The, the, the problem is that Kyle Lowry is still Kyle Lowry, and I don't, I'm not even going to allege that he's like choking or anything else. Um, but he's older and less explosive than he was even a couple years ago. And he was 0 for 6 from 3. In that moment, you would want him to attack the rim, but that's just like not really his game anymore, which is also its own problem. Yeah, there's some um, like so, poor man's Chris Paul stuff happening to him, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah, and, it, and it's hard to watch because I get, I like Kyle Lowry, and, and I don't want to see him just melt down here, um, but hey, it doesn't I'm actually with you on the Kawhi stuff. I think you're really onto something there about him being slept on a little bit, but I do think we need to hold him accountable for game one. It's going to get better for him as these playoffs unfurl, but when you look at that last defensive possession um, where they just botched that switch, right? It's him and it's Marcus Saul. We're talking about two mm-hmm. defensive player of the year winners in the same pick and roll against the Orlando Magic's DJ Augustin and Vucevic, I think. And they botch it completely. They just don't communicate. Uh, Augustin gets a wide open looks at a step in, easy off the dribble three-pointer, not even deep, just walks right into it. Um, easy as pie. That's yeah. that's on Kawhi Leonard. Like I understand, maybe Mark should have switched, but you know what? If Kawhi had actually shown up and played games for the entire season, 
Uh, I knew you were going there. <laughs> they're going to have the chemistry and the cohesion necessary uh, to be able to handle that situation. I'm basically ready to start calling Kawhi Leonard Tuesday, Thursday, because the guy basically plays twice a week. And I think that's a huge problem for them. Uh, we saw it already pop up. But when you're going against a team like Milwaukee that's clicking on all cylinders, when you're going against a team in Philadelphia where their chemistry looked terrible in game one, but we saw flashes in game three of what it can look like when it's good. Um, and even Boston, mm-hmm. their chemistry ceiling is pretty high too. And don't even get me started on Golden State, where their chemistry has been here the last three weeks. It's just been off the charts. Those little things are going to bite you so hard, and that's going to be on Kawhi. And I think that is one drawback of the way they've managed his season is they were not ready when push came to shove. In the most important moment of their whole year, they screwed up, and it was his fault. Yeah, well, I can't get there as far as... um you know, drawing a correlation between Kawhi's rest policy and that miscommunication. But I do think that whenever Kawhi retires... You don't think it would have been helpful to have handled maybe 50 or 60 more of those over the last three months after the trade to kind of get yourself in a position where you can handle the most basic play in basketball against a below-average team? Come on. Perhaps it would have been. uh, This is one of those things where... Your take is a little bit hotter than mine. I'm over here on the East Coast rolling my eyes. But you might be 100% right. This could be like when you said the D'Angelo Russell thing jeopardized his future in L.A. Like, you might be right here that Kawhi resting too much is one of the reasons that they struggle in those situations. The basketball gods um, came for him, Andrew. We saw it. You know, <laughs> you think it's just going to be a waltz in the park now that you're on a new team in the playoffs. You didn't show up for your team last year. Guess what? It's on you for game one loss. Yes. Well, perhaps, you know, Uh, I think that it's my answer would be Kawhi should be side eyed for his rest policy throughout the season. I hope that when he retires uh, and potentially goes to the Hall of Fame, we somehow commemorate him bringing load management into (laughs) the universe, (laughs) because I think he's kind of like the forebearer of that stupid ass movement. So but we could get like a statue as, of like some bronze, bronze new balances for the load management. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, I see new Kawhi new balances every week. They re- release like some new PE of the new Kawhi's new colorway or something. Those shoes are never actually in stores. So I don't really understand what new balance is doing. Uh, Can we but just, that's just a, yeah, no, I'm with you. Can we just get one Giannis sneaker, please? Like how many times are we, exactly. like how many can we see from Kawhi that are whack before we get one look well, at a Giannis? I mean, these guys yeah. are out here rolling the Pistons and that's another fan base that, you know, we're kind of taking pot shots left and right at fan bases, but boy, did I warn the Pistons fans or did I warn the Pistons fans, Andrew? You did. And, and just to finish my thought there, I think the Kawhi sneakers could be like a giant Ponzi scheme for <laughs> Uncle Dennis or something. Like, we don't know. We won't know until the shoes are actually released in stores. So do the right thing, New Balance. So uh, it's like the Big Balance moving- brand is what's happening. But <laughs> yeah, no, on that- it could be. It could be. I don't know, man. Um, I hear you. On that Milwaukee-Detroit series, though, uh, I don't think Milwaukee— I don't want to talk about that series. It couldn't have gone any better, though, for them in game one. I mean, you know, the kinds of things that you think, okay, which teams are going to be coming out slow in game one? And we don't have to belabor this point, but like 
you would think teams that have one playoff series before would be more ready for the moment. Milwaukee hasn't. Uh, lots of expectations there locally. It was one of those situations where it's like, oh, Blake Griffin's not going to play. Now there's no pressure on Detroit. That's how it could go sometimes. Instead, Milwaukee was like, wait a minute. Like, you're really going to roll out a team with Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond and a bunch of no-namers in the playoffs against us? And they just worked them right out of the gate. I thought it was the most impressive performance by everybody, Golden State included, in Game 1. It was really, really impressive. Um, I don't know if it was the most impressive. I think Houston was probably the most impressive if we're looking at game ones around the NBA. The Pistons just don't have a shot. And it's like Giannis against Thon Maker and Luke Kennard. It's like, come on, this is unfair. This is borderline inhumane. Uh, and the Bucks. I love where the Bucks and Celtics are right now because we just have, we're not going to have any idea what kind of playoff teams these really are until we get to the second round and have the Bucks and Celtics face off because the Bucks are playing a team that basically should not be in the playoffs. Um, all due respect to, like, if you take Blake Griffin off that roster, they're not good enough to be in the playoffs. That's not a hot take. And then the Celtics are playing a Pacers team that is good enough to maybe push them for stretches but can't really take advantage of any of their long stretches without offense any of their kind of lapses on defense they just don't have the firepower so we're not going to know how good the Celtics are until they play the Bucks, and we're not going to know how vulnerable the Bucks may be until they play a team that can actually punish them which the Celtics can do I mean like the the Budenholzer blind spot is his three-point defense his inability to adapt some of the lineup decisions that he's made over the course of the season. Like, I think there are some real questions headed into that series on Milwaukee's side as well. Um, but right now, we're not going to really know. and We're not going to know whether those, those questions matter or how relevant they may be until they play a real team. You never give these Bucks any credit, man. I mean, they could have won that game by 60 points. I mean, they smoked them off the court. I hear what you're saying about no Blake Griffin. No, look. And it, it's going to get harder. That's how the playoffs work. The, you know, the, the, the tests ratchet up. But if you're trying to equate yeah. how Boston looked in their game one versus how Milwaukee looked in their game one, where Boston's getting the pace controlled on them for two quarters by an Indiana team whose best player is like, you know, Bogdanovich or somebody. I mean, come on. I mean, they barely put up <laughs> no, 84 points. I mean, here's it was what not I love impressive. about it, though. What I love about it is that Boston kind of still looks shaky as hell, and Milwaukee looks completely invincible. There we go. And I don't think either of those stories are particularly accurate with these no, two you're teams. You're right. The, the and truth, we're going to have to see where we the are. The truth is in the middle. But finally, 50 minutes in, we finally got something you said that I actually agreed with was that, <laughs> that Boston looks shaky. Hey, can we double back yeah. on something you slid in there about Houston looking like the most impressive team? What made you say uh -huh. that? Why do, why do you say that? Well, I think that Utah played fairly well, um, despite how the score looked at the end of the game, and Houston just had answers all night long, and the, the role players were hitting shots, James Harden was outstanding as a passer, his shooting was kind of all over the place at times, but... Um, he did a great job kind of managing the game, even without getting to the free throw line, which is sort of his like eternal crutch. Um, but he was great, and I was just really impressed. And it was one of those things where you see in some of these Rockets games how impossible they can be for any team that isn't at 
like the Warriors level, like ch- championship caliber, a normal basketball team with normal players and a traditional center and shit like that just has no answer for what the Rockets are bringing to the table. And um, it is really impressive. Man, that was music to my ears. That was so beautiful. I was about ready to, you know, just sit back well, here and look, let you keep going. This is going. your title, Ben. <laughs> you and James Harden, round one victories. This is this is as good as it gets, so I'm glad that you're enjoying it. Um, well, can we move? I, I want to just say on them, though, Utah trying to take the Milwaukee Bucks strategy defensively where they, like, kind of sat on Harden's left hip or tried to take away his three-pointer. It was amazing to watch that play out because it were it did not work so obviously and so badly. I almost couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, Utah, we know, mm-hmm. has been an incredible defensive team, not just Gobert, their team for years. We saw Milwaukee have a pretty good amount of success uh, using that strategy on James Harden because Bledsoe just kind of treats Harden like they're in like a subway car together and he's just like all up in his space making him very uncomfortable crowding him and just sort of shadowing him and it's just like dude like you don't have to stand right next to me just like give me like a foot of a of breathing room here right Utah yeah even though they've got some pretty good you know defensive players just had no one who could really execute that strategy and Harden made them look like a, a middle school team and Quinn Snyder is a good coach but watching that play out it was like oh my god so that was my next question for you was that a game one loss that like signified like a series loss? Like it's going to be quick, or do you think that you know Utah has any chance here to like actually make this a series? Because to me, it was so reminiscent of Houston dominating them for most of last year's playoffs that uh, I worry. Like, are the Jazz going to be able to get up off the mat, right? Or is it just sort of like mm-hmm. here we go again? We have no answer for him. Uh, Harden didn't even really shoot that well, like you said. He didn't even really score as well as he can. They can beat us in all these different ways, and we don't have every counter in the book to keep up with them. Uh, we're going home. Like, I worry if it's going to have that kind of a mental effect on that Jazz team. Um, I think that's a valid concern, in part because of the way things worked out last season, in part because headed into this season, they did not want to play the Rockets, or headed into this playoff season. And this that game one is why. I'm glad you highlighted the defensive strategy, because my takeaway, more than anything else, was holy crap, Eric Bledsoe is the best perimeter defender in the NBA um, because he was able to play that strategy and still harass Harden in a dozen different ways. And a normal defender, whether, you know, poor Ricky Rubio, like, is it going to be able to do that? So yeah, Ricky Rubio um, is a good defensive player, but I, I don't know if, it, if know. it was a reps issue. I don't know if it was just like so counterintuitive that he, he hadn't really like thought out what exactly he was trying to do. Uh, but also yeah. Gobert got exposed in that thing too. Like that guy was just in no man's land the whole night. Their whole defensive rotations and everything were all screwed up. They clearly were overthinking it. And um, I don't know, like from somebody who has been, uh, you know, a pretty staunch jazz backer for the last couple of years, um, it wasn't like completely embarrassing, but it was like borderline embarrassing how that whole thing played out. Yeah, well, and the the Gobert stuff, look, that takes chemistry also, and it is probably kind of disorienting to play defense like that all of a sudden after playing a completely different style for 82 games. And so I think that also, I just remember loving when the Bucks threw that out there and Brooke Lopez and Eric Bledsoe kind of like created that defense on the fly, almost independent of Budenholzer. And it speaks to how good those guys have been. Um, but certainly doesn't speak highly of Gobert to suddenly be be looking inferior next to Brooke Lopez, um, the defensive player of the year. Uh, so 
I don't I wouldn't panic too much on the Utah side if only because as one of our emailers Thaddeus pointed out like the role players had absolutely nothing in that game and they were five for 30 from the floor uh, and they did do a good job limiting Harden's explosion on offense as a scorer. Uh, I thought Harden's passing in some of these games, you do kind of step back and be like, holy crap, he might be the best passer in the league also. Um, so I think like he still dominated that game, even if he was 11 of 26 from the field. Uh, but the main thing, the, the the biggest worry I would have going forward is that they're just not going to be able to score with them enough to win four games. Yeah, for I do sure. think that they're going to be able to make this go like five or six games. I mean, that's like the the counter counter argument is like, well, you know, everyone's focusing on the Jazz's defensive struggles, but what about their offense? Their offense played terribly. It can definitely play better. That's fine. But if you want to beat like a top three or four team in the league and you're the Jazz, your formula for winning starts with elite defense, right? Controlling the pace, keeping yeah. everything under control, wearing guys down, uh, dominating the glass, allowing Gobert to play like the superstar impact guy that he can sometimes be. If that's just taken off the table, I don't think that they're in that class. And it doesn't really matter how well they play on offense. They definitely don't have enough firepower, uh, enough diverse threats, enough playmakers to, you know, quote unquote, win games with their offense. And so that's why I'm nervous. You know, I think I, I picked it uh, coming into the series, Rockets in six. I'm almost now more ready to say Rockets in five. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's pretty reasonable. We'll, we'll have to see. The Rockets role players were also hitting shots in, in game one, which makes them more or less unstoppable. So I'm not ready to write off like a six game series, uh, but I did, I did, enter game one with like a nagging question in the back of my mind like could this just be like a Rockets meltdown because so many people were writing Houston into the second round and talking about yeah. Golden State Look, this wasn't Houston. this wasn't in the back of your mind you sent me three days worth of text messages <laughs> on that very subject and now you come on the podcast kind of like fronting for the audience you know yeah let, let well, the open you, did, floor it too. Club, you no. did it with D'Angelo Russell um all right let's move on though because you're right that that series is going no more than six games and will probably be over in five games what do we think about your favorite series, at least when we talked on Friday, the Denver Nuggets and the San, San Antonio Spurs? What did you see? Um, I wasn't impressed by how either team played in game one. I mean, I think San Antonio did what they needed to do to get home court, and so they obviously you know, accomplished a major goal in that series. If you look at San Antonio's home record and Denver's road record, like you can yep. very easily make the case that this is just going to be Spurs and six. And that's like an inevitable outcome just because, you know, Denver's not going to be able to return the favor. And you know, even if they bounce back in game two, that's just sort of where this thing is headed. Um, mm -hmm. I thought Derek White made you know a number of really, really big plays uh, down the stretch of that game. So kudos to him. Uh, another guy who we haven't talked a lot about this year, who's had a, a pretty nice breakthrough in terms of, you know, going from obscurity to, you know, starting and playing big minutes for a playoff team. Uh, I think for Denver, their crowd was not nearly excited enough for them getting back into the playoffs. I mean, that whole thing was weird. It almost seemed like the crowd didn't have the faith um, at all. They were like believing the skeptics. That had me a little bit nervous. But I also think that overall, their offensive uh, strategy worked pretty well. Everybody on Twitter was bagging on uh, Jokic for not being aggressive enough, but he was creating wide open shots with the pass, very makeable shots for lots of his teammates. 
and they were just ice cold, uh, like some of these other teams that you were mentioning earlier. So I do think if they had had an average shooting game, they wind up winning that game, uh, and they're in good yeah. shape. Um, I do think he needs to look for a little bit more of his offense. I think it's a valid criticism, but I think it was a little bit overstated. Um, and also Murray, I think he came out uh, after game one and basically said he just rushed uh, that game winner. Like he didn't take his time and he didn't pace himself. I mean, he was wide open. I think he makes that shot probably what, like six or seven times out of 10 uh, because it was such a good point blank look. And for the game to kind of hinge on that miss, I think that's a gut punch for them. Uh, it's tough for a mm-hmm. young and inexperienced team to lose that way in game one because you know like emotionally that game one victory would have meant so much to them. Uh, but I think that Denver didn't embarrass themselves like a lot of these other favorites that lost. Yeah, they didn't embarrass themselves. I was a little bit disappointed because I think obviously you can point to their shooting through the first three quarters and be like, well, look, if you're if you start the game three of 25 from three, you're going to have a hard time winning. Um, and particularly because so much of their offense is just guys running off Jokic and spotting up for three or, or taking dribble handoffs and going and stepping into pull up threes. Like it, so much of what they do is built around that. And if those shots aren't falling, they're going to have a hard time winning. I understand that. Having said all that, they had a chance to win. And I was like, kind of shocked it was one of those things where i didn't get to watch the game until the day after i watched a replay uh like there was moments where they could have folded right and they didn't like they were right down there until the last seconds of the game and then they did fold (laughs) it's like because i i saw the final score it was like okay so i guess the spurs just beat the crap out of them and outlasted them down the stretch but the nuggets had some chances to win that game that they should have capitalized on. I mean, Jokic basically fumbled away a ball in the lane uh, that he could. He didn't even get a shot off. Um, and then 30 seconds later, Jamal Murray misses that point-blank look from about 16 feet. And they are a good team, um, but it. this is why I was worried about them, is because I don't necessarily trust the guys around Jokic. And I think the next two weeks against these Spurs are going to be a really good test for the Nuggets and what they actually have and whether they want to believe in these guys going forward. Because a lot of these guys have enough upside such such that you could cash in some of these assets and try to trade for another star. Like you could try to go to Washington and say, all right, here's Jamal Murray, Malik Beasley, and, you know, Juancho Kernan Gomez or whoever else you want to throw in there and give us Bradley Beal. And maybe Washington listens in that scenario. I don't really know. But, like, that's that's the other option that's looming if, if things aren't going to work with this young core. And I think we're going to find out a lot about how real they really are um, in this Spurs series. Because this should be a winnable series for Denver. Like, all kind of, like, hand-wringing about their youth aside, this is not a bad matchup for the Nuggets. Yeah, I don't know how we got sidetracked into overrating Bradley Beal, but that was an interesting detour. Uh, <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I thought that, on balance, their resolve was impressive. You're right that... Yeah, it was. You're right that when the pressure really uh, was up, all the way up, that they did make some really serious self-inflicted wounds that, you know, cost them the game. And I think that the pressure will be a lot higher on the road. And San Antonio is a tough place to play. I've seen it 
take apart young young teams before I was there when Portland fell apart, uh, you know, five or six years ago against them. I mean, it gets really loud and intense there, and it's probably not going to be quite the same because this team isn't really in that contender conversation, but it's going to be a much different environment for them. They've already had that question, um, and that's why I think, you know, if they wind up losing this series, they will look back to that, uh, you know, game one, final two minutes and say that's sort of where it happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll see. And look, if they just bring everybody back next year, that's perfectly fine too. I'm not saying blow up the nuggets, but I am saying that you can learn a lot about young players in some of these games and you like, it's not a crime to be aggressive and say, look, we don't necessarily think it's going to work with player X and let's get out in front of this rather than wait for another well, two or three years. So let's put a finer point on it. I mean, are you out on Murray? Is that what you're trying to say? That, <laughs> that is sort of what See, I'm saying. That's too, that's I'm too not, premature. I don't love Murray, but I like him a lot. And I think that, look, this is his first career playoff game. He wanted the shot. He took the shot. He wanted the shot a little bit too much, which is better than not wanting mm-hmm. it at all. Right. So, Let's can we uh, can we pump the brake just maybe a little bit on that one? That's perfectly fair, and there are a lot of smart people whose opinions I really trust who are very much in on Murray. And it for me, it's not just about this one game; it's about like seven or eight Murray games that I've seen this year where I'm just like, he's not making shots. He does he can't run the team. That's Jokic's job. I don't see him making an impact on defense. I don't really understand what the appeal is. And um, and then there are other nights where I look up and it's like he's got 45 points. <laughs> it's like, all right, so that's what the deal is. He, Jamal Murray is Devin Booker part two. Um, and so maybe that's the perfect player to spend the next 10 years with Jokic. Um, but it just, it's one of those things where he does still have enough upside where he would have a ton of trade value if they wanted to move him. Yeah, just keep in mind, like it feels like he's been around a while, but he came in super, super young. So his age 21 season, which yeah. is this season, that's the same age that Curry was as a rookie, right? So like, of course, he's not going to be the next Curry. I don't think anybody, you know, casts him having that level of, you know, anything close to like that level of a ceiling, right? But he does have all-star potential. And uh, I think that, you know, if you're saying, hey, you're in your quote unquote rookie season, you're in the playoffs and wanting to put, you know, with the game on the line and wanting to put your team on your shoulders and take that shot. I think most coaches, most organizations would take that from a guy who's never going to be more than their number two player, right? Like you already have your franchise guy in place. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying, I think the the reasonable safe assumption is to keep Murray in Denver as long as you can and see where everybody is in three or four years. And that's probably the right course of action. I'm just saying there have been a couple times this season where I've watched them and been like, I don't love what I'm seeing from him. And it's a little frustrating and hard to explain, but, um, but he could just as easily turn around and be lights out in the next two weeks against the Spurs and we could be having a very different conversation. And I think that's part of why this is so important to the Nuggets. Is like, this is an opportunity to solidify all of this season's very real progress up and down the roster for the whole organization, really. For sure. You, and, you know um, me. I hate moral victories. I hate moral victories. But if there's any team that's sort of in that situation where it's like they can chalk this season up as a possible moral victory, I think it's the Denver Nuggets because of where their win total wound up. 
because that you knew they were going to go through some growing pains in the playoffs because this team is so young. They've got in basically the entire core locked in, ready to rock going forward for years to come. They're all just kind of playing with house money. And I would like to see them continue to be competitive to you know, win game two for sure, have a nice bounce back there, take care of home court the rest of the way. But I just don't think it's this grand organizational failing if they wind up losing. It definitely isn't, um, but it would be a great organizational success if they were able to make the second round because, look, they would have a good shot against either Portland or OKC, which is probably a good place for us to end is talk about that series real quick. Um, but uh, So I don't want to sound like I'm down on the Nuggets. I'm not, I'm not down on them at all, uh, but I do think that these the, the value of these playoff games – is they give teams a chance to see exactly what these guys can do at the at the highest levels, and um, now I sound like a fucking like NFL announcer or something. So hey, I'll look, move on. Big but... players make big plays in big games. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, though? of course. I do think I'm that with this you. Is I'm with you. Things. But we should okay. we should move on to Thunder Blazers. That might have been the most interesting game of all of them, right? Um. Yes, it was. I, I think that series is going six or seven. The Thunder defense is really, really solid. It is going to keep them in these games, in part because the Blazers' offense doesn't have that much firepower outside of Dame and CJ, or at least they certainly didn't in game one. The role players, shout out Rodney Hood, did not totally show up. <laughs> yeah. um, well, but, look, I don't uh, often find myself outflanked by reality when it comes to Thunder skepticism, you know? Like, I've been pretty grounded and pretty critical of Westbrook and his impact in the playoffs and, uh, you know, pretty skeptical of their, you know, overall framework of here, here's how we're going to try to win without any shooters and all that stuff. I never in a million years thought they would get punked by Enos Cantor in a playoff game, ever. I mean, if you could, there was no way if you had come on this podcast last week, Andrew, and told me that Cantor was going to win a game for the Blazers by going for 20 and 18, and Damian Lillard was going to be on the podium telling everybody who would listen that Cantor was the MVP of the game and that Cantor was going to be getting mm. some digs in in his post-game press conference about the New York Knicks being the worst team in the league who wouldn't even play him. It felt like a, a complete dream sequence, like uh, almost a nightmare sequence because I didn't even foresee it. I did never saw in a million years OKC going down like that. Um, yeah, in retrospect, it shouldn't be as surprising as it was. I think Ennis Cantor, me personally, I struggle with Ennis Cantor because I sometimes conflate how much I loathe his Twitter thirst, uh, his, his unquenchable thirst in the media sometimes rubs me the wrong way. But you like that rebounding ability for your fantasy team, don't you? <laughs> well, no, no, no. Here's the thing. And this has always been true with Edis Cantor. He can help in the right matchup against a team that doesn't have the tools to exploit his weaknesses. I mean, it was true when Ennis Cantor was on OKC and Sam Presti signed him for some reason as a way to convince Kevin Durant that they were all in and Ennis Cantor was suddenly like a playoff factor. He was good against the Spurs in that one series where it looked like things were... I mean, that was a really close series and Ennis Cantor helped tip the scales. Um, so I think he can help in this matchup as well. And, and that's ultimately the two biggest questions are a, is Paul George going to be healthy enough to shoot the ball better than three of 15 from three, because that's a huge factor for not just George, but also like 
spacing the floor and providing balance that allows the whole Thunder offense to breathe. And then the second question is, can Billy Donovan find ways to exploit everything that makes Cantor unplayable against like half the other teams in the playoffs? And if he can't, and shouldn't can he Russell be fired? Westbrook execute? I mean, if he can't do that, if they wind up going down to Cantor after knowing everything about him inside and out, don't you think that's Billy's job? Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we've been hard on a lot of people with this podcast. Three straight first-round exits is what they're staring at if they lose to the Blazers. A Blazers team that doesn't have its second-best player, whose collection of role guys, like you mentioned, didn't play that uh, well in Game 1 because they're not actually that good. Um, They did a pretty good job on Damian Lillard. I thought he came out with an absolute incredible spirit about him. You know, first touch, Mm -hmm. coming right down and banging that shot from 30 feet. That really sent a message. There's no question about it. But the Thunder should win this series. I mean, they were favored... Uh, by the odds makers for a reason. And if you're going to go down like that, where you're not even making the most basic of adjustments to exploit a guy who's been consistently the weakest link in playoff series, you know, for multiple years, I mean, to me, that would raise some really serious questions about their coaching. Because I've heard a lot of people say, well, like, what's Billy's case as a good coach, right? I think the, the strongest argument you can make is that he has catered and pulled the best out of Westbrook and kept Westbrook engaged throughout his tenure, right? Yep. And that's not you don't you, you should not take that for granted. That's I was going to say that's not trivial. That's easier said than done, right? And he's he's got an MVP level play out of Paul George too, but then the flip side is, well, you know, aren't there other coaches out there who would be able to do those things and also make a very basic strategic adjustment to just, you know, get Canner into foul trouble? get him working on the perimeter, you know, mixing things up. So you're running repeatedly pick and rolls, right? Had him on the same possession to just, you know, freak him out and and get him to misstep. I just felt like they made his job so easy. And, you know, Cantor was able to succeed because he was getting help from both teams. Um, Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think, I think you're underselling um, Donovan's role in keeping that defense elite year after year. Um, granted, they sort of fell off the second half of the year, but they they are really good at a lot of little things that are going to give them a high floor. But you're that's totally fair if you're saying he should have a plan at least to attack Cantor, and they didn't seem to have a plan in game one. Maybe that'll change over the course of the series. And maybe part of that is on Westbrook, too. And that's why all these Billy Donovan conversations are always difficult because I don't know if Westbrook is really capable of uh, executing in the pick and roll and punishing someone like Cantor the way 10 other point guards would be able no, to. And that's a Westbrook problem more than a Donovan It's true. It, rem- it reminds me of this phrase I heard that says, uh, you know, Westbrook plays with purpose but not a purpose. Point guards oh, who played with a purpose, they're seeing the entire big picture. They're seeing all 10 players on the court, their strengths and weaknesses, and they're understanding and they're orchestrating those players into situations that your teammates want to be in and that opponents don't want to yeah. be in. And Westbrook, <laughs> you know, he just was not um, – thinking the game on that level in game one I think he can do better than he showed in game one right I think he needs to really like he should be watching tape for 48 hours straight to understand like what you know what he should be doing to kind of get Canner out there where he's staggering around he's leaning he's fouling people he's like recovering and and uh you know not really affecting shots inside I mean the, the one success they did have was sort of with these little dump off passes to Adams in the paint 
where Adams was able to mm-hmm. get a number of buckets that way. And, you know, that was something where like, they should have just kept going right at it because Canner is never going to get up and block those shots. And, you know, you can, uh, you know, just basically run that thing over and over and over again. And the teams that have exploited Cantor have been the teams that found like one thing that worked and then just ran it 15 times until the other coach uh, waved the white flag. And again, Oklahoma City, for whatever reason, they just didn't want to do it that way. They, they wanted to take a, you know, a less cohesive, uh, less strategic, less direct approach. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say that that was the one thing that Russ was doing. He was getting other guys involved. He didn't give in to his worst instincts as much as I might have feared in game one, particularly with Paul George struggling. Yeah, still time for that, um, though, right? I mean, what <laughs> well, happens if they is. get down 2-1 or 3-1? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, well, that's the thing. And that's why you said OKC should win this series. I'm not so sure. I mean, it, it may come down to... Who's better? If Paul George is hurt, it may come down to who's better between Westbrook and Damian Lillard. And at this point in their careers, I would take Damian Lillard. Yeah, and, that, and that's uh, a real triumph so, for the Blazers if they win this series. I mean, that's, you know, like we could laugh and, you know, kind of poke fun at Westbrook's like postseason uh, foibles and everything. But if Portland wins this series without Nurkic, that's big time, you know, and, and we'll see if they can, yeah. they can bring it home. Yeah, uh, and it was, it was cool watching. Like, look, after... Last season's Pelican sweep, they got swept in by the Warriors the year before. It was just awesome watching Lillard hit big shots in game one because watching him take over games is one of the more enjoyable things the NBA has. And um, I'd missed having him do that in the playoffs because there have been a lot of Blazers. There's been a lot of Blazers sadness over the last few years. Um, well, so it was cool to see them win, and I hope they can keep it rolling. The one thing on the on the OKC side I would add is that there were a lot of people highlighting the shooting numbers, and obviously I think they were 4 of 35 or something, something <laughs> crazy. But Some like small number none of those out guys of the big number. Shoot. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I think people were implying that shooting variance is going to ultimately favor OKC going forward, but like I'm not so sure because Westbrook is a bad shooter. Dennis Schroeder took seven threes, and it's like, look, bro, that's a win for Portland. Uh, and then you go right up and down the roster. I think that's kind of the the flip side of the OKC coin is when you build a team full of these like rangy athletes who are going to give you an elite defense every year the big problem is that those guys most of those guys can't shoot and the ones that can shoot generally play for golden state and they are superstars and the best players in the league you know that's well said look what you're trying to say is oklahoma city regressing to the mean is not the same as the average team regressing to the mean right like their mean their mean is significantly lower than, than the real average right and so and well, especially and some of those guys when Paul George is struggling. right. And also in the playoffs too. Right. Because like some of these guys, it's like, do you really expect any of them to step up and actually be themselves in the postseason If Westbrook's like counting on them and like whistling passes across the court at them and they're standing around and thinking <laughs> like, should I take this shot or should I just like keep the ball moving to Paul George? Oh, like there's some, it's one of those things, man. It's like, you know, when you hear players talk about playing with a great, great point guard, They'll talk about, and people have said this about LeBron too, like he'll always find you right in your shooting pocket, exactly where you want to be. 
And then I would love to hear guys like off the record talking about playing with Westbrook. Like he'll always find you with three or four seconds left on the shot clock and throw you a 75 mile an hour pass. He'll always find you going for an uncontested rebound and climb your back to grab it so he can get number 10. (laughs) It would be be tough. It's that's why like when people hit me with the Westbrook assist numbers, I'm like, you know what, man, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But um, but we'll see. I, I like OKC in game That's two. That's the best series we've got. I think this is going to be a war for It's the best weeks. series yeah, we've got, right? Fun. I mean, I think my last takeaway thought here, maybe close the podcast with this, is I'm a little bit worried about these playoff TV ratings, Andrew. Um, I don't know I, where they came in, <laughs> but like I felt the LeBron absence, absolutely, on the opening week. Uh, Golden State just smoking uh, L.A., has me a little bit scared. Like who's really going to be able to test them? The fact that Golden State and Houston both looked, you know, really solid game one, but we know they're not going to be in the Western Conference Finals against each other. That's got me pretty nervous. I don't know what that Western Conference Final is going to look like. Uh, and then same deal in the Eastern Conference with some of these teams that we thought were going to be really good, and they showed some early flaws. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really wonder what the casual fan makes of this postseason bracket. I guess that's my question. Maybe we'll have some data here you know, from the television companies in a week or two to kind of confirm those, uh, those concerns or maybe reveal them to be, you know, false concerns. But man, like, I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I thought there was a lot going on in terms of the upsets, the big performances, Kevin Durant getting ejected and all of that on opening weekend. I'm not sure it really had that, that pop that I expected. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm not as worried as you are. I think that they, first of all, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought the games were closer than I expected. Like the Orlando Raptors game was maybe the most enjoyable oh, yeah. game in the entire Ratings weekend. bonanza. Um, well, yeah, not a, well, I don't really care about the ratings. I think that you better, man. what we're going to see. We're trying to stay in business here, Andrew. Can't. Come on now. <laughs> that's fair enough. Fair enough. What I would say on the big picture side of things, we are going to have some quieter first round series. And I believe the payoff is going to be like the second round with Golden State, Houston and Boston, Milwaukee and Toronto, Philly. Those are three like A plus blockbuster matchups. And then the fourth series in the West is also going to be fun because you're going to have some flawed teams that are on equal footing. Um, and so I, I think the second round is going to be a lot more fun than the first Wait, round. Did you say Bro- um, Brooklyn-Orlando is a blockbuster matchup, or what would you say? <laughs> Maybe. Look, man, I'm I'm all in on Brooklyn right now. Those guys are fun to watch. Karis LeVert is awesome. Yeah, he did really play well. I've not given the Nets any credit all season long, and I'm pretty much going to go down with that. But Karis LeVert... That's an incredible story based on where he was six months ago or even four months ago. It's wild, yeah. And the the last thing I want to say, though, is that I just loved watching basketball games that actually matter this weekend because over the final month of the season, it was like, yo, like nobody's trying. Everybody's either tanking or resting. None of this shit is something anyone should take seriously. And then it was like zero to a hundred with the Sixers showing up against the Nets. And it's like, oh my God, how is this the Sixers team? How was this ever the plan? Where are they going from here? And you were reminded what the stakes really are for some of these games. And um, 
for that reason, I can't wait for the next six weeks, even if we know the Warriors are ultimately going to win the title. I hear you. I mean, I'm locked in. You know I'm locked in. Like, You had to pull me away from the post-game press conferences, the podiums, to even take this <laughs> podcast because I'm so excited. But I'm just more worried about the casual fan. We'll see how it plays out. Maybe uh, more people will, will be siding with you, and they'll be enjoying this little chaos factor we saw you know, opening weekend. Hey, Andrew. We shall the see. The Open Floor Globe can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Look, I have a feeling we're going to be getting a lot of fact checks and angry counter arguments for some of the stuff that we said on today's Yo. podcast. So look, we're not going to preface it by saying, oh, it's a late night podcast. No, we stand by everything we said. I was about to do that. <laughs> <laughs> look, don't hold me accountable for anything I say at 1.15 in the morning <laughs> on the East Coast. But yeah. You're a trooper for hanging through, uh, hanging with me, Andrew. They can also check us out on Apple Podcasts. Uh, search for our page. It's two words, open floor. Find it, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. We're also on the world famous radio.com slash open floor. I'm on Instagram at ben.goliver. I might have to unveil uh, another lantern segment for later this week. So you better follow me there and check out my stories and see if I do. What a tease, Andrew. Uh, until later this week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.